Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Ooh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? Not just bikes. We also make a rower. Have you ever tried to row? Too hard. Not with Form Assist. It actually teaches you how to row. So it doesn't matter if you're a first-time rower or a seasoned pro. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Row risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 40 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union, but they're better known by all of us as DCU. And not only is DCU a great place to bank at, but they are also a great place to work. And they are hiring right now for full and part-time positions. And I know it might be a really unique time to try and visualize yourself at a new job. But at DCU, they're here to help you make the change along with offering a benefits package that includes three weeks vacation, a competitive salary, a generous bonus program, 401k plan with 100% company match up to 7%, plus tuition reimbursement, a student loan payment assistance program, and so much more. Now that sounds good. So to learn more about DCU and career opportunities, visit dcu.org careers. DCU is proud to be an equal employment opportunity and affirmative action employer. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by MistressCarrie.com, which is where you can find every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And I'm not just talking about the weekly feature episodes, but also every episode of the Sit Rep, which is all your rock headlines, music news, and industry info in less than five minutes every weekday plus every episode of Cocktails in the War Room, the events calendar, my blog, my photo galleries, and the official online Mistress Carrie store where you can get everything from t-shirts, sweatshirts, beanies, koozies, mouse pads, coffee mugs, shot glasses, and more. 
Just log on to mistresscarry.com for everything. Okay, I have been waiting for this week's episode. I've been talking a lot about the movie Long Live Rock, Celebrate the Chaos. It premieres Thursday, March 11th at 8 p.m. And this movie is years in the making. The description says it's a deep dive into the culture of hard rock music. The genre is beloved by millions of its fans and is often misunderstood and maligned by media and the music industry. In intimate interviews, the leading titans of rock discuss the genre and the special relationship that they have with their audience. Featuring members of Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Slipknot, Godsmack, Korn, Avenged Sevenfold, Rob Zombie, Five Finger Death Punch, Rage Against the Machine, Greta Van Fleet, Hailstorm, Bush, Fever 333, Tooth, In This Moment, Papa Roach, and more. It's directed by Jonathan McHugh and produced by Jonathan McHugh, Gary Spivak, and Jonathan Platt. And recently, I had a chance to sit down and talk to director and producer Jonathan McHugh. And he knows music. He's a documentary film director and producer and a music supervisor. But he's also a former label and film executive that had high-ranking A&R and creative and marketing positions at companies like New Line Cinema, Warner Films, Jive Records, Sony Records, Island Def Jam, Universal Records. And he's also been producing and directing a ton of pop culture and musical-based films over the years. He just finished directing a documentary called Cosplay Universe, which you'll hear him talk about in this interview. He's also producing a documentary about Muhammad Ali's history with his hometown called City of Ali. And he's produced over 30 films and TV shows. But at his core, Jonathan McHugh is a rock guy from way back. And he has got some great stories about some of the amazing bands that he saw in his childhood. His mom's from Boston. So when I had a chance to just sit down and talk music with him, I couldn't wait. They sent me an advanced screening of the film, Long Live Rock, Celebrate the Chaos, and every rock fan that sees it is going to love it. Not only am I really excited for you to see the movie, but I'm really excited for you to hear Jonathan's story. So allow me to introduce you to Jonathan McHugh. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely... Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your bra on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stain, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to, you have the privilege of listening to Mistress Carrie. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. 
Jonathan. How are you, Mr. Scary? It, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am so excited about this movie. Well, thank you so much. It really is made for the fan, and I know you are one of the biggest fans out there for the last two, three decades of this music. And it is, you know, as we say, it's a misunderstood genre. Um, and, uh, you know, the station that you worked at all those years, AAF, was, was one of the, I don't want to say only, but one of the top flag waivers of that genre forever. And I, you know, the people that ran it and did it and you, you know, we just salute you guys because this is really what this movie is um, to celebrate this music and these fans. Um, it's really important. I love the timing of this film. Uh, it's called Long Live Rock, Celebrate the Chaos. And the timing of it, literally just last week, um, marked a year since I had actually been to a live concert. And I haven't had that long of a gap since I was in junior high school. Yep. And yeah. watching this movie and watching people at a live rock concert the way that we used to do it, up close, personal, sweaty, crowd surfing, moshing, backstage craziness. It made me long for the good old days that were just a year ago. Sure, and we debated, you know, we, we've we screened this movie on the big screen. Uh, we did it at Columbus for our cast and crew. We did it at the Grammy Museum. And you know, when you've got those good speakers and you, you know, this thing cranked up, people like jumping out of their seats and just rocking. So it's really kind of frustrating to have to have this whole virtual world but the reality is you know the movie's coming out on literally the one year anniversary of the lockdown and there's a reason for that that people need this and if we can give that to people that they can just tide them over until they can get back out there on the field and play that's what the goal is you know looking at the list of artists that took part in this movie. It's a who's who of rock, hard rock, heavy metal. How hard was it to make those phone calls to get these artists to, to be involved? It must have uh, been a one call well, thing, right? For me, who's used to booking interviews, it's, um, you know, it was amazing to have my producer. And the movie doesn't happen without him. Gary Spivak, who books, works for Danny Wimmer Presents, books all the shows, you know, whether it was Louder Than Life or... Uh, back in the day, you know, um, uh, Rock on the Range and turned into Sonic Temple and Aftershock. I mean, he's the biggest festival promoter in the country. So safe to say he's got tremendous relationships in this area. And the way we worked it is we just, you know, we would really smartly, we'd set up a trailer in the backstage of these festivals and he would say, hey, can you, Lars, can you give me 15 minutes? You know, can you give me Tom Morello? Can you give me 15 minutes? And, you know, everybody's sitting around, they have some time, they're doing a bunch of interviews and they're prepping for their set. But it was kind of not, we knocked it out easily that way. And that otherwise it doesn't happen because, to, you know, who can afford to go travel to see all these different people and get all these interviews? You know, we would have literally eight to 10 in one day. And then I would run out on the field and follow our fans, um, you know, as because they were the main, they were the main storyline. So I was like a chicken with my head cut off, like, you know, okay, I got to get these interviews. They got to be good. The quality has to be there, audio, visual. Setup's got to be great. Questions got to be prepped. And then I was like, okay, as soon as I'm out, I'm like, okay, I got a half hour break. Let's go to stage two and watch this band and see, follow our fans and talk to them about their experiences, you know? So uh, it was, uh, it was amazing. <laughs> it was nothing but amazing for me. It was fun. 
That's why those festivals are so great for the fans, too, because who can afford to go see all of those bands on their own tours? But when you get an opportunity to go to a large festival, you can see all your favorite bands on the same day. Right. And the value add of that is not only that, but it's what the community does and how they get RVs and they all park together and they, you know, the mornings are spent making breakfast and hanging out and playing music and then all walking into the festival together. And, you know, the party crew that's featured in the movie, um, God bless these guys, you know, G and, and Scott Prince and, and everybody and Jesse and, you know, um, Andrea, they're just amazing real folk who just, this is their shit. Like this is what they do. And they meet up and they go from all these different festivals and they get an RV and they go. Um, and they were our kind of entry into this world. And through them, we met, other people like Abby, you know, wheelchair crowd surfs or Michelle who wanted to crowd surf on top of her husband. And, you know, these really great characters um, who you just couldn't write if you're writing a script about this. And they were the heart and soul of our film. Rock stars are amazing. They they are good things to talk about. But this film is about the party crew and the fans in general of of this genre. I love the fact that when... You decide to make this film that it's not just about the bands. It's the same kind of conversation I had with myself when I started the Mistress Carrie podcast, that it's not just a, a rock band podcast. It's a rock lifestyle podcast. And the bands are part of that, obviously. And the people behind the scenes of the music are part of it. But the fans as well. And one thing that I noticed, because you guys sent me the movie a little early so I could check it out. Thank you for representing the female rock fans in a major way because yeah. we're out there. Yeah, and that was something. It's so easy to overlook the, the badass chicks. No, that was not going to happen on this one because, first of all, um, this and and Rob Zombie talks about it. You know that rock became a sausage fest. You know what I mean? Like, um, so I didn't like that about rock how it became that, and I don't particularly like the heavy screaming and a super annoying guitar. I'm much more of like an alternative guy at my core and a singer songwriter guy, if you will. But growing up with Metallica and going to see Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and Kiss when I was a kid in my formative years, there was no other kind of music. It was just this music, right? It was rock music. And then coming, cutting to the nineties, when I work with Metallica, I meet Gary, I get turned on to Rage Against the Machine and Jane's Addiction. And I'm like, you know, and so then 20 years later, Gary's booking these big festivals and I'm like, Gary, like the fandom of this thing is like, we should do a film about this. Cause now I'm making movies. I'm producing movies. I want to direct a film. So we go to Columbus and do this first festival and we do a put together, cut together a sizzle reel. And I'm directing another film about the, um, another subculture about the cosplay culture, which is its own misunderstood, you know, f f uh, as, as Miles Kennedy says, Island of lost toys, like our, you know, our <laughs> genre. Um, and it was like, I didn't know about that genre until I wrote and produced a Snoop Dogg movie. I went to Comic-Con for my first time and I was like, wait, why are these people dressing up in the summer? Like this is only supposed to be for Halloween and Mardi Gras where I went to school in New Orleans, where I learned that. And so you realize that people in the cosplay culture use this music as transition. Like they try on different personas, like boys may dress up in a, you know, in a Alice in Wonderland costume or girls may dress up as Spider-Man and it's perfectly accepted. And maybe they go to that next level and they decide, you know what, inside me, I want to transition. I want to become a different sex. This is what feels, fuels me. So 
the subculture of rock, I was always, I always viewed as misunderstood. I knew what it was. I loved it. And, but yet you put on some tattoos, get some tattoos, you pierce yourself, you get long hair, you wear all black in the middle of summer. And you're like, wait, these people are freaks too? No, they're just, they've got their thing and they're in it. And you, so both of these films in a way are kind of like a 101 you know, introduction 101 into a genre and a subculture um, and to show that you can't judge a book by its cover. Just because I'm tatted up, I got purple hair like Mistress Carrie, you know, doesn't mean much. It's just how you express your fandom. And, you know, we were talking earlier about how metal can be calming and it can be soothing. And and one of the the lines in the movie, this couple G, who's our, one of our main um, our main, uh, he's the guy who started the party crew. He's like, he meets this woman, and she's like, "Yeah, I gotta go to sleep listening to the Black Album." And he goes, "I gotta marry her, right? Like, what's better than that, right?" All of a sudden, you have a T-shirt or a uh, statement, and you're like, "Oh, that's my girl! Like, that's my girl right there!" Or, "Oh, you like Metallica? I like you like." Guns N' Roses, you like Rob Zombie? Like that's I'm, I'm your friend. Like it's an immediate bonding tool, the music, and it cuts across politics. You don't need to talk about Republican, Democrat. I hate this guy. I hate this guy. I hate this. No, I love this music, and this is my stuff. And that's what I love about it. It's a unifier. You know, growing up in the '80s, like I really learned my love of rock music in the '80s, and back then. There weren't a lot of women represented. You know, there was Joan Jett and there was Lita Ford and there were definitely female examples. But more often than not, women were in the videos, you know, in Motley Crue's videos and Bon Jovi videos. Well, they were objectified. They were were objectified. And so I'm sorry, I really didn't answer your question. So let's go back there. Thank you for bringing that up. So, for example, (laughs) you meet Maria Brink, you meet Lizzie Hale, right? These are strong empowered females who get up on stage and crush it. And so we interviewed Lizzie at the festival. She came off so good. Um, AJ, her drummer and brother, they talk about their story. I'm like, well, look, this is like a bigger thing for me. So I talked to Bill McGathy, who's the manager I know for a long time. And I said, Bill, I want to go on the road. Like they're doing this tour with all women, right? Hailstorm um, in this moment. New Year's Day. New Year's Day. Like I want to go see that show. And so he's like, well, how about San Francisco? I'm like, great. I go to the Warfield. We interview Lizzie. She lets me come to this um, in-store. She's doing at Amoeba, right? Where we meet this fan who says, you know, she's, I don't know, teen, whatever. And she says, I, I, I wanted to save myself to go to my first show to be a hailstorm show because I am, I, I feel Lizzie so much as a person and that was a beautiful moment to be part of. You know what I mean? To, to see that with Lizzie and to meet Lizzie's super fan, Dave, who's been to 80 Hailstorm shows and talk to Maria Brink about how she, and, and then the super fan segment about one of my uh, fans, uh, Abby, whose favorite artist, Maria Brink and tattooed her lyrics on her arm and who, you know, got a shout out from Maria Brink and she gave her, her, you know, bullhorn that she uses or dunce cap, whatever that thing's called. Um, and to see that passion, a fan of Abby talking about, oh my God, her lipstick's on it. Like, come on, man, that's so beautiful. So the women in rock had to be talked about. 
And obviously in people like Tom Morello and Fever 333, you know, um, seeing minorities out there rocking, it's like super important to show, yes, it's not exactly a rainbow coalition because it's mostly a white male dominated genre, but yet there's all sorts of things coming up and, and, and different genre, uh, different um, people that are being represented. And I like, we have to talk about that in the film because it's super important in our world today. So um, yeah, females in rock. I love it. You know, it's something that comes up on the podcast a lot, especially in the last year since losing AAF and trying to keep this really super passionate Northeast rock scene together, which is one of the reasons why I launched the podcast it comes up a lot, and I say it all the time. Who would have thought that the world could learn lessons from the rock community about being open-minded, about inclusion, about representation? Because at the end of the day, the most we want to argue about is, like, top five guitar players of all time. And you want to, you know, swap stories about that show or this show and what album and and the songs and I mean, if Tom Morello and Ted Nugent can be friends, the rock community can do anything. <laughs> That's a good point. Because Ted Ted's become pretty extreme. He was actually, my first concert ever was Kiss. Uh, and, and you'll appreciate that. And NASA calls him. Second concert, Providence Civic Center. Uh, Ted Nugent opening for Aerosmith, the Kings of Boston. Um, third concert, Led Zeppelin. So those are, those are my big three. Fourth concert, Black Sabbath. Um, that's how I was indoctrinated into the world. But yeah, Ted has become a pretty extreme. Uh, I can't exactly say I'm a fan anymore. It's really interesting to hear Morello even just recently on Stern talking about how there's still a way for those guys to be able to connect on a music level. And it's amazing that rock music in general, that while we are viewed to be kind of on the fringe, we're way more open-minded and welcoming than pretty much any other genre or style of music. Yeah, I agree. Do you agree that rock music and the fandom and, and the community of rock, that the longevity is there more for rock artists than any other genre? Oh, absolutely. You talk, you know, Andy Gould, who managed Zombie Forever, talks about it in the film, going to his Judas, first Judas Priest concert and how he remembered, like, the father and the son and, you know, and the grandfather being together. And I think that, you know, as I've turned my, and you know, another great analogy was, you know, my son grew up in California, but his number one team is the New York Yankees. Cause we, I grew up in New York and I indoctrinated him into it. Right. So the dark likes side. Rock, yeah. He likes, he likes rock music, but, but yet he loves all these other genres of music. And so I think that through the generations, it stood the test of time better than most. Because it is something to, it's got a, it's got a thing to it, right? Where pop music is disposable, hip hop has got a thing to it too. But as it becomes more pop, it loses that, you know. Whereas rock, the, the and Zombie really says it well in the film. He's like, I don't want to be on Kathy, you know, the morning shows talking about how rock is dead. Like rock is our thing. It's like our our thing. We don't want to necessarily be mainstream because if you become too mainstream you lose your brand. And the example of that is fashion. So you look at, um, I remember we talked, this brand, it was a, a hip hop street brand called Cross Colors. And Cross Colors um, went right from like being a street brand to being mass merch 
and died and, and and it went you know the company the big company went bad you know so the problem is once you go mass merch you can't come back you know they talk about it in the estate business like you got to start boutique and build and build and build because once you go mass merch you're done so rock never went mass merch in a way it always kind of maintained that really nice lane and i think that keeps it so that people don't go yeah i'm over that band I'm over that band. They got too popular, right? It's that thing. The when a band outs. just yeah, and you look at Metallica, the fan base that they have made, kept, built, it's like nothing other to me. Like they're probably one of the greatest brands of all time who just maintain purity. You know what I mean? And um the closest they ever came is Enter Sandman. They made what could be conceived as a hit song in the rock world, but they never went back and did it again. They went back to the core base and just kept doing it. So, and they're the stalwarts, man. They're the they're the they're the godfathers of the game, if you will. I mean, there's many of them also, but you know, Slayer Slayer is another great example, right, of really maintaining purity. And and Rick Sales did an amazing job with them as a manager of that band, you know. So well, it cracks yeah. me up that the fashion of these metal shirts over the last few years that like when you see a Kardashian wearing a Slayer shirt and it hits wow. the Internet and it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> but it's just an example of how cool they kept their brand. Right. Slayer and Metallica mean dangerous, you know, and certain hip hop has maintained a brand of certain danger. And then the mainstream, a.k.a. Kardashian I want a piece of that. How do I get a piece of that? Well, let me put on a Slayer or Metallica t-shirt, right? Um, it's like an immediate brander. Like you see, um, what's the show? Billions, right? The the guy who's in the head of, you know, the uh, Axe, who Axe is the star of the show, right? He's a rocker. And he, it, he has this Metallica thing. He actually goes to a Metallica show in the show and he wears a Metallica t-shirt. And it says something about him. He doesn't give a fuck, right? And it's a character piece for him. So it's just interesting to think about the psychology of it and how the brands have stayed together, you know, so well because they haven't gone mainstream. And that's why the credo of rock is dead comes up because it's not mainstream and it really doesn't want to be mainstream. And, you know, the beauty of a new band like Greta Van Fleet, right? So I'm a guy who saw Led Zeppelin. I'm a guy who's Led Zeppelin is still to this I was going to ask you about that because the right, idea so, of seeing Led Zeppelin in concert is like, oh. Right. So it's still my favorite band to this day because that experience, I'll, I'll just tell you a quick sidebar of that story. So I just did an interview today for the Staten Island Advance, right? Which is a paper I grew up as a paper boy, right? So in 1977, Led Zeppelin announces they're coming to Madison Square Garden. And I have like $300 in paper out money in the bank. And I go to the bank and I say, put it all into a money order and write it to Madison Square Garden. Because there's a lottery for Led Zeppelin tickets. I'm like 13 years old or something. And every day I'm checking the mail, right? And one day my mother says, you got a package. And I go to the front table and there is a tape package from Madison Square Garden. And I open it up and there is, I want to say 16 tickets to Led Zeppelin. Like whatever I could afford, I bought like three different nights, right? So I'm like, holy shit, I'm Willy Wonka. I got the golden tickets. And I go to school that next day 
and I say, you know, my core Led Zeppelin crew, we're going to the show, and their people are freaking the fuck out. And then the word gets out, McHugh's got Led Zeppelin tickets, right? And so I then there's a guy who's in the Robert Begley's his name. And he's he's the Robert Plant impersonator. He has a band, they play Zeppelin covers, they're great. And I go, Begley, are you going to Zeppelin? He goes, No, man, I didn't get a ticket. And I pull out a ticket and I said, we're going to the fucking show. And he starts crying, right? And so, and then, then like there was a couple extra tickets and I, and people were like, dude, I'll give you two, three times your money. And I'm like, wait a second. So I get my tickets paid for. And I realized, wait, there's a business here somehow. So I sell a couple tickets to pay for my tickets and my friend's tickets. And then I, when I get to college radio in New Orleans, I become the ticket guy. And I realized, wait, there's a business here. Like I could actually get into the music business. And that's what I, I sprung board that college radio experience into getting into promotion of uh, radio promotion for record companies. So like you think about Led Zeppelin popped a light bulb in my head, which took me to college radio, which took me into the business. And it's just a weird thing I've never really talked about, but it, it kind of makes sense. So, OK, now back sidebar, back to Greta Van Fleet. Uh, someone says, uh, I'm going I do a show. I'm doing a show on, 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 on the Sunset Strip. And I run into a friend of mine in line at the at the the Viper room. I'm like, "What are you doing?" And they're like, "I'm going to see Greta Van Fleet." And I say, "Who's she?" Right? And they go, "No, no, it's a band." I'm like, oh, "Okay." So the well, next it's, time, well, it's it's a woman, but it's a well, band too. Uh, yeah, you're right, you're right. So next time they come through, Gary and I go, my partner, and I'm having trouble with it because he's so affected. He's got all the Robert Plant moves, and I'm like, "Yeah, this is too too much for me." Like, and then I go see him another time at an outdoor theater in LA and there's all these girls up front and yet they're with their fathers and their fathers are loving it. And the girls up front are like, Oh my God, they're so sexy. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So they're bringing girls back to rock. Yeah. He's a little too close for me, but when you interview him and then we interviewed him and I realized his father brought him up on blues in Detroit in Michigan. And they were just great kids who grew up on blues. And you, you kind of got to get past it. You know what I mean? Because it is the greatest rock band of all time. So, okay, if you're a little affected by it and imitating a tiny bit or giving it an homage, if you will, so be it. And their music is evolving. And my, well, one of the producers and uh, coordinators on this movie is 24 years old and she loves them. And so I, we had the conversation the other day about their new music. And I was like, what do you think? And she goes, I love it. And I said, yeah, it feels like an evolution from the first record. Um, and so they're going to continue to grow and get better and better and better. And again, if they bring women back to the genre, God bless them, you know, keep on going. I think Dirty Honey's doing the same thing as well. Dirty that Honey's great. Mark they're one of those, band, right? Yeah. That they're one of those bands that it's like, you know, if you're, if you're a bunch of kids and your dad's playing you blues, you're going to get inspired the same way that Led Zeppelin got inspired by those same blues artists. I yeah. talked to the Royal Blood guys a couple of weeks ago about this, about how rock and roll keeps inspiring itself over the pond, that the blues got sent overseas and then the British band sent it back and then we sent it back. And it's like we're playing this ping pong over the ocean to see what we can turn rock and roll into based on the inspiration. Sure. Um, to go back to Led Zeppelin, just because I don't know very many people that actually saw them in concert. You're a 13 year old kid at Madison Square Garden most popular kid in school now because you figured out the racket of well, buying no, no, tickets. No. By the way, amongst the rock crowd only, remember, 
this is still a Led Zeppelin is a very popular band and rock is more popular than when it was today. But still, you remember what happens at that time. Disco happens, you know, I mean, even before disco, so to speak. But but remember, it is still a certain class of people. So I'm not the most popular kid. I am certainly the most popular kid. No, I mean, amongst your friends, you're the king right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For the moment, I'm good. I got the taste. Yeah. And you walk into that arena... Everybody listening to this has been to a rock concert. I want to hear what your experience was like going to see Led Zeppelin as a teenager in 1977. What wow. do you remember that the the whether it be the songs that you still hear that remind you of that show? I just I I well, if I you, had you, the I'll DeLorean, I would go back yeah, and see I'll that band. You, I'll tell you two things. They played for three and a half hours. Okay, <laughs> the only time I was able to leave my seat. I had to leave my seat and I kind of planned it out was during John Bonham's 20 minute drum solo from Moby Dick. Right. <laughs> I was like, all right, this is going to be the time. I know I'm not going to miss anything except Bonzo crushing it. And I could take five minutes off for that. So I, that I remember the only time leaving my seat because just ra- in rapture, right. In that show, some fucking idiot threw an M80, which is a, Severe firecracker, shall we say? Powerful, powerful firecracker. It's like a sixteenth of a stick of dynamite, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it hits Jimmy Page and blows up on stage. <gasps> and Jimmy Page walks off. You know, he fucking freaked out, and he luckily wasn't too injured. Um, uh, it walks off the stage, and the band keeps playing, as I recall. And it's rock and roll, right? Like it's, I'm a hockey player. I take a hit. I keep going, right? And um, or maybe they stopped. I don't. I don't quite remember, but I do remember that. Um, and that was a traumatic moment. Like, is the show going to stop? You know, and I don't. I don't remember if it did stop or not. But um, it's just the euphoria. And I went. I think two or three nights um, to the show. But I, I will tell you the the more memorable rock and roll moment for me was seeing Kiss, Blue Oyster Cult. And Leslie West from Mountain. That was my first show ever at the Nassau Coliseum. And, you know, we don't have cars. So we take a bus to the ferry, Staten Island Ferry, ferry to Manhattan, uh, subway to Grand Central, Penn Station, and then the train, the LIRR to Hempstead. And then we, I guess, take a cab to the show. We get there, we wait online. There is, it's a general admission show, if you remember those. And the doors open, and guess what? There's a fucking stampede. And my, my Puerto Rican buddy, Chicky was his name, at the time, I remember. He gets sandwiched against the glass. This is a firm memory. He gets sandwiched against the glass of the door, and he's like, the mob is rolling by him. And I grab my friend's hand, and I and I, I say, grab my hand to the, my friend my next door neighbor was like a 300 pound football player 200 pound football and i grab chicky's hand and i grab chick i get his hand and i grab his arm and i grab his arm and i literally like piecemeal like a rope and i pulled chicky in so we get in we're i don't know 30 40 people from the front on the floor and we're it's like three o'clock in the afternoon the show starts at eight nine o'clock whatever um my friend, you know, people are smoking weed. My friend James Monroe, the first guy I ever got high with, faints, okay, through whatever, not enough water, too much uh, drug intake. I don't even know. So I remember that being traumatic. Show's unbelievable. 
right? All the three bands crush it. Kiss is the pyrotechnic. You know, I've been a fan of this band and I'm just like, you get to see this shit come to life and it's like unbelievable the show they put on. Show ends, it's after midnight. You get out of the Nassau Coliseum. Now this is, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you. This is, um, this is New Year's Eve, 75, 76, right? Wow. It's New Year's Eve. It's New Year's Eve. There's, it's sleeting out. There's no cabs. So we start walking the two miles to Hempstead to get the train, except that guess what? The last train on New Year's Eve was 1 a.m. And the show ended at like 1230 because they wanted to have New Year's on the show. So we get to Hempstead. It's four, whatever, 330 in the morning. The only place open now, it's snowing by now, right? Uh, we're soaked, soaked to the bone. The only place open is the police station. Right? Everybody's still probably holding some some drugs, right? We go into the police station, and there's uh, ten other people in are in the same situation, sitting on the floor of the police station because there's no train till six a.m. And we literally just get a wall, get a spot on the floor, and and we wait until the sun comes up. And my mother, when I got home at eight a.m., was so furious, right? She took away my bank book. You can't go do things like this anymore. You're too young. Um, and that was kind of my indoctrination to rock and roll from there. So you <laughs> it's asked, such a so foreign concept of like no cell phones to call your mom, no Uber to be able to get back, you know, no, no way to like, like if you look, you think about it now that you're a teenager on new year's Eve trapped at the police station and you can't get home today. That's like the plot of a film because anybody under the age of 30 can't even fathom a world without right. a smartphone and Uber and just doesn't make any sense. Right. So I thought, okay, do I do a collect call to my mother at 3.30 in the morning from the police station payphone booth <laughs> or pretend maybe she's sleeping and maybe I can get back because my mother was a writer, as I told you, right? So she would stay up all night writing and sleep during the day. She was like a vampirist, right? And... So the question is, well, maybe she won't miss me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, <laughs> but it didn't work out that way. So kids are so stupid. One. Maybe my mom yeah. won't notice I'm not home on New Year's Eve when she knows I was at a kids about show. The in search of rock and roll, like the power of rock and roll, what that will do to people to make them do shit like crowd surf and mosh and stage dive and stay out all night in 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 Long Island when you live, you know, hours from there. Um, it's just funny. I haven't thought about that in so long. So thank you for helping to spark that memory because it's a great one. The closest I ever came to dying in any kind of mosh pit or whatever. And I remember thinking to myself, I can't die at this show. I was in college and a bunch of us went out to what used to be Riverside Park in out in Agawam, which is now Six Flags. And they used to do outdoor concerts. And it was the Spin Doctors, Soul Asylum and the Screaming Trees. And when the spin doctors played two princes, a mosh pit broke out, which was completely unexpected. And now I'm getting pinned against the barricade. And I just remember going, I can't die at a spin doctor's concert. No, that is not a good look. That is not I wasn't a good worried look. about dying. I was worried about where. <laughs> That's funny because you do not put spin doctors and mosh pit in the same sentence normally. No, it was ridiculous. And then the only other time that I came close... I was about 15 rows from the front 
at the old Foxborough Stadium on that Guns N' Roses Metallica co-headlining tour wow. with Faith No More. And it was five days after the Montreal riot when James Hetfield had been burned. So his arm was in a sling and his roadie was playing guitar. And unlike Jimmy Page with an M80, somebody hit Axel with a rose, like an actual flower when he was sitting behind the piano. And he stormed off stage. And everybody in the crowd was like, here we go again. Oh, shit. And I remember I was standing next to a member of the Patriots. I can't remember who it was, but he was like an old lineman from the Patriots. So he was just a mountain of a human being. And he just looks down and he goes, if the shit hits the fan, stay with me. <laughs> and I was I'll like, block, I'll block for you. That's great. Yes, sir. That's encouraging. Like, That's encouraging. No problem. But like right. you look back at those memories and it's like, like that harrowing experience for you on New Year's Eve or like, like how screwed up are rock fans that we look back at those scary, crazy, troublesome moments with such fondness? <laughs> well, the, the, you know, it's funny. I haven't thought about that, but the, um, the stampede was scary as fuck at the moment um was super scary and you know james monroe was like my big brother and him fainting and me having to like take care of him those were scary moments like and the show hadn't even started yet you know what i'm saying so there's a uh, reason why they don't have ga shows like that anymore for yeah. that reason yeah it's a dumb idea like you know you just open the doors and let people all run in at the same time <laughs> who thought of that you know and it was before the who thing whatever that was, Cincinnati, whatever that was, where people actually died. Like you could literally die. Um, so yeah, it's, I don't know. It, it's an obsession, rock and roll, and it's a beautiful, you know, and that's why this movie, we just wanted to celebrate it, you know, in today's moment. And literally, did we know that you're making a moment in time, right? Like they're crowd surfing, all this stuff, moshing, even festivals like you can't take it for granted. It's always going to be there. Like your radio station, right? Your AIF was like for granted. That station was always going to be there rocking. But there's nothing that lasts forever. And, you know, so you always have to take stock in that and, and realize that things, you know, change and morph and, you know, uh, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Um, but, you know, we wanted to celebrate the genre. And Gary and I have been friends for 20 years since we worked you know, we had to take, we were responsible for part of the team. You know, Metallica, Enter Sandman was a number one rock record, right? You guys were crushing it. And you guys played it every couple hours. Like it was a, like a top 40 rotation. But pop radio would not play Metallica. Even though the record was in the grooves and it was a hit, the stigma of playing Metallica was just unheard of. Well, rock and, radio was slow to play Metallica before that. I mean, until one right. came out... Metallica made their name off of people dubbing cassettes and passing it around and, hey, check this out. I mean, I remember being in high school and loving, you know, the Bon Jovis and the Queensrikes and, you know, all of that stuff. And when I heard Metallica, it was like, whoa, that's that's dangerous. That's that's the real shit. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's gritty and scary and underground. And every guy I know that liked rock music, you know, was like. Yeah, this is a little scary. You go to the show and you didn't know what to expect. I mean, it was right. dangerous. And radio yeah. stations didn't know what to do with it back then. Well, try top 40 radio. Like, you know, we had to do some, I'll, I'll tell you, if, if you have, I don't know what our timing is, but I'll give you one quick sidebar. Yeah, you're good. Story. So <clears throat> we were, 
uh, as radio promotion people, we were in charge of trying to get radio stations to play this record, right? Top 40 radio stations. So there was one guy in Rapid City, South Dakota, who used to be in California, had a lot of friends in top 40 radio, and they would listen to him. He was like the A&R guy for records. And if he said play it, they would play it, a lot of his friends. So I said, Bob, you got to play Metallica, man. This understand my record. He goes, man, I, I, uh, I can't play that record. I go, what do you mean? He goes, I go, you're in South Dakota, man. People like to rock out there. Isn't that where Sturgis is, the bike rally? And like, you know, he's like, yeah, I can't play it. And so I beat on week after week after week. And one day, so he was also an independent film fan. And we would talk films like, you know, common bonding, whatever. And one day he said to me, I said, Bob, what is it going to take? Like, you know, can we do like a flyaway and bring some fans to see a show or something like to connect the dots a little bit better? He said, I'll tell you what, he's like off the cuff. He goes, I'll tell you, this is when Harry Met Sally, the film was out, right? I'll tell you what, you get me an autograph, Harry Met Sally, Met Sally script, I'll play the record. Click. And I'm like, what am I, what, what am I going to do? How am I supposed Somebody to do that? Somebody get right? Billy Crystal on the phone. So all of a sudden I go, wait a second. I'm in the office building where Rob Reiner's office is down the hall. And I'm like, I see Rob Reiner in the commissary all the time. And I don't, don't know him. I don't talk to him. I grew up watching All in the Family. And obviously, I'm a big fan. Spinal Tap. The guy made Spinal Tap. You know. So I'm thinking to myself, all right. And now I work at Electra Record. Electra Record has one of the greatest catalogs of all time. Not only do we have Metallica. We have The Cure. We have Jackson Brown. We have... Um, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on a bunch of stuff. We have some of the greatest rock bands in history, right? Because David Geffen Asylum was Electra. So Eagles, you know, we got like the greatest shit of all time. So I walk in the office, their office with a box of CDs. And I, the receptionist says, hi, can I help you? And I was like, I don't know, maybe. And I explained the story to her. She goes, hmm, what do you got there? And I show her what I got. And she goes, oh, I love this band. I love that. I love that. And she goes, so she gets on the phone, she calls Rob's assistant and Rob's assistant comes out and I tell her the story and she goes, what do you got there? And I go, oh, you know, so she takes a couple of CDs and she goes, I'll tell you what, Rob's be back from lunch. Now I know Rob is at lunch down the hall, right? At the Maple, at the Maple, uh, it was called Maple Drive restaurant. And so Rob walks in from lunch and he walks right by me and just keeps going. And his assistant comes out, he goes, she, she waves at me. She goes, come here. So. She goes, you got five minutes. And so I go in Rob's office and I tell him the tale. And he, he looks, you know, there's some CDs in the box, another box for Rob. And he goes, oh, I love this band. I love that band. Who's this band? He said, well, tell me about this band. I tell him about the cure or whatever it was. He didn't know. And he goes, all right, I got you. So what's this guy? He goes, he goes, did he say who had to autograph the script? And I said, no. So he goes, you don't need Billy Crystal. You don't need Meg Ryan. I go, he never said. We never, we never talked about it. So he gets a pen. He gets, goes to, goes to the, the, the you know, the, the shelf, pulls down a script, and he goes, what's the guy's name? And I said, it's Bob. And he goes, Bob, play the fucking record, Rob. And he hands me the script. So I'm like, oh my god. So I, I FedEx the script to Rapid City, South Dakota. And I happen to be going to New York the next day to work in New York, the corporate office. You know, the pressure is on to get this record played and move it up the top 40 chart. And my boss is like, so I tell him, we're going to get the ad. And he goes, Monday comes, he goes, where's the ad? They didn't call it in. 
And he goes, get the guy on the phone and get the ad. I call. He doesn't pick up the phone. I call. I call. I call. It's Monday. It's, you know, it's Monday night. And I say, well, I know the guy's on the air. So I get the request line. I call information for Rapid City, South Dakota. I get the request line. I call the request line. I just fucking keep hitting it, hitting it over and over. Hours. Finally, a guy picks up. And it's Bob. And I know his voice. And I say, he goes, hi, uh, what do you want to hear? I said, I'd like to hear Metallica, Enter Sandman. And he goes, is this McHugh? I said, (laughs) Bob, what are you doing to me, man? You, are, I'm, in, I'm in the office. Like I might get fired because you told me something. And he goes, "How did you do that?" I said, "Bob, that's not important. What's important is that you be a man of your word and you do what you say you're going to do." And he says, "McHugh," he goes, "I can't play that record." I go, "Tell me why you can't play that record." He goes, "The stigma of Metallica. My bosses will just come down on me." I said, "I tell you what, Rob, I got it. Do me a favor, just put the record on." Don't tell people who it is. Don't back announce it. Just play the record and see if you get any phones. <clears throat> and so that's what happened. He put the record on at night without white, what we call white labeling it. Didn't tell anybody who it was. Didn't back announce it. Phones started lighting up. And the following week, he was forced to play the, to add the record. And I didn't get fired. So, you know, that's the kind of shit that it took just to get a record on the radio because of the stigma of Metallica. And as crazy as it sounds, you know, that's the way it was. Meathead from All in the Family. And when yeah, Harry Met Sally gets Metallica done. on Top 40 Radio. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most ludicrous rock and roll story ever, which is what makes it so beautiful. Exactly. It'll be in the book. One of the other <laughs> things I loved about the film, and I thought it was really powerful, is when Ice-T talked about the energy in the mosh pit coming from the rap world and his experience with body count and what it's like to be on stage at a rock show. And now that rap has really ingrained itself in so many ways in rock, when you talk about Rage or Fever 333 or Linkin Park or any of these newer artists that were equally inspired by the legends in rock, but also the legends of hip hop, having somebody like him say, it's the craziest thing I've ever seen is a mosh pit like that stands well, he, out for he's me in the really movie. to me he's one of the most interesting characters of like the whole 20th century because here's a guy comes up in the hood goes to live with his cousin who's a rock, who's a rock guy gets totally inspired by him and can just be this top rapper who's dangerous and gets banned by Warner Brothers but yet this body count thing is so important to him that he keeps it going and becomes not only a rap headliner, but a rock headliner with body count. And then he goes on to have this successful TV career, you know, and it's, it's just really a a true indication. And, And part of it is because he embraced both crowds, right? He embraced the rap fan. He embraced the rock fan. So his TVQ, think about it, is double, right? TVQ is an expression meaning that they know you on TV and they like you, right? So here's a guy that appeals to both genres because his heart is telling him, hey, yeah, I'm black, but I like to rock. You know, my cousin taught me about rock and I'm fucking into it. And uh, it's really just an interesting thing. And then he ends up on TV playing a cop. Right, exactly. (laughs) After fucked up, you know, after the the whole controversy. It's it's, it's a beautiful story. It would actually make a great biopic 
Um, he really is a great story. And he's had the same manager the whole time. Um, George Hinojosa is like beautiful, like they what they the way done together. It's fantastic. What do you think it is about? I mean, I remember fighting this battle at AAF for years of the argument that, like you're talking about with Top 40, about rock being too scary for certain advertisers, right? And so, like, when you talk about losing rock stations the way that we lost AAF, part of the reason is, you know, you got to be able to, to show the radio companies that they can make money in advertising off of a format like rock. But... If you've got people that don't understand and don't respect the fan base, the passion, the loyalty, it's this really hard razor edge to to balance on because you and I both know, and we talked about it, the loyalty of the rock audience that when they love something, they love it. And if you're loyal to them, you know, I used to call, you know, we're like the junkyard dogs, you know, that we're loyal, we're there, we're, we're, but don't cross us. And, and that's and that's the sellout part of music, and it's a sellout part of it. Really, it really mostly exists in music, and that's what Rob Zombie and and Lars talk about. You know that they basically just maintain the core, and if you do anything too cheesy, too poppy, your people are going to try to rip you down. Like they're not feeling it, and that's why it's a uh, words not pedigree, but it's a it's a um, it's a situation where you stay true to your core, you know, and you serve the core. And the downside of that is you can't break out of the box. You can't be mainstream because if you have a hit, and the examples of those things are on the you talk about the Spin Doctors or the Blues Travelers, right? They're jam bands. They start as jam bands. But if they had a hit, like Blues Travel had a couple of hits, I worked with Blues Travel at AM, then all of a sudden they're not as popular in the jam band culture. They can't get booked anymore like they used to get booked because they're pop bands now. And Taylor Swift experienced that with country, right? She becomes, she arrives from a country star to a pop star. And then the question is, can she still get played at country radio now that she's a pop star? So this happens in most other genres but rarely ever in rock because they stay in their lane. And um, it's just an interesting thing. I mean, Motley Crue, example of a band that had hits. You know, there's certain rock bands that have hits and they cross over into pop. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, but you talk about, we talk about Slayer. We talk about Rick Sales. We talk about Cliff Bernstein and Peter mentioned how they manage Metallica and how they know exactly keep, Keep it to your lane. Branch out here, branch out here, but you can't branch out here. You can't go too far. You can't do a you can't do a record with Taylor Swift, right? You can't you can't do it. Um, so it's interesting. It's psychology. It's the passion of the fandom. It's keeping pure to your to your base. And um, you know, AAF made that decision. We're going to play this music, and we're going to stay true to the core. Um, but again, that doesn't play well in the advertising world, which keeps your station on the air. So it's a, you know, it's a blessing and a curse, I think. Do you think that, that rock music, especially stations like AAF, the more of them that we lose, do you think rock is being kind of driven back underground, especially now with the technology we have, like my podcast, where the rock fans are out there, obviously. 
And when we're allowed to go to concerts again, it's like you can see the bodies, the, the traffic jams trying to get into the venues, the amount of money that people are spending. But yeah. do you think that's where the future of rock is, is that it's going to have to kind of go back underground to a certain point because of how mainstream the big media companies are becoming, where rock may not have a seat at the table the way that it used to? I mean, the argument well, with the rock hall and all this kind of stuff, not that it's yeah, dead, but that's... is it being driven back underground a little bit? Well, I think that in the commercial nature of every individual station having to fight for local advertising, I think that's the genius of a, a concept like Sirius XM, right? Where I listen to predominantly Sirius XM because why I want to rock, I go to Octane, I listen to Jose. I want some singer-songwriter, I go to the Spectrum. Um, I want some new alternative music. I go to Alternative Nation, right? There's something for everybody there. And it's a, the idea of having a national outlet that can that have specialized people like the Jose's of the world that do Octane and um, and have real programmers that understand these genres and what they are. And if I want to hear Tom Petty or the Foo Fighters station, you know what I mean? So they're a really good alternative that have come along to make sure that people get served. Um, and I think that will keep it not you know, going underground, but it's, like I said, it's not mainstream in the sense of some of these pop ditties that you hear or mainstream hip hop records are just not. When you hear a guy fucking, like I listened to this band, The Architects the other day, right? Uh, Eddie Trunk was talking about it and Eddie's in my movie also. So I was like, all right, I hadn't heard it. I put it on. And the first thing you hear, the guy's screaming, right? And then I'm like, all right, well, I'm not in the mood for screaming, but you know what? I let it play. And he starts to sing and it's a really good record, you know, but that off-putting nature of what rock, hard rock can be, well, is not for everybody. And that's just it. It's an acquired taste, right? Sometimes I'm in the mood of fucking rock. I'm always in the mood for Rage Against the Machine. I'm always in the mood for Metallic. I'm always in the mood for Led Zeppelin. But some of this other stuff that I'm experiencing and checking out, and I'm always in the mood for Greta Van Fleet because that music feels a little bit more mainstream to me, if you will. Mainstream rock, not the harder edge rock. So it's just a, it's an acquired taste and it's, you know, it's different strokes for different folks, really. You and Gary working together for so many years and, and working some of the biggest rock records and putting together some of the biggest festivals and biggest tours. Can you imagine doing that and having the artists and all of those experiences being able to be documented the way that bands and fans can document things with social media and smartphones when you go back and think of the things that rock used to do and there's no evidence. <laughs> right. And then think about it. I'll tell you another thing. This movie, like you watch movies like Heavy Metal Parking Lot, right? Which is really just a dude with a video camera outside of Jesus Priest show in the parking lot. That's what the movie is, right? But yet this movie is revered, okay? The other movie that gets talked about it in that context uh, is Western Civ 2. Penelope Spears, great filmmaker. Otherwise, you can't count movies about the hard rock. Metallica movies, you know, they're great documentaries. But as far as a, a genre film, so part of my thought process is, well, wait a second, if those movies still get talked about 20, 25, 30 years later, why can't we make one that shows where we're at today with the genre and maybe 30 years from now, people could be watching that movie? That's like something that you want to leave something behind. And after, you know, music supervising 80 movies and producing 30 others, to have my first movie come out that means something to a group of people, 
that means a lot to me. And I think that's why one of the reasons I wanted to make this movie, and I know Gary did too, because um, Gary, you know, much like me as an alternative guy, loving alternative music, Gary used to run alternative <clears throat> um, radio departments and labels, and then kind of fell into the genre. And he would get shit from his friends, like, why are you fucking in that rock shit? And so Gary, like, well, fuck you. Gary's that kind of guy. Like, I'll show you. I'm going to have festivals that have booked 70, 80,000 people. That's and the I'm perfect gonna... rock response. Yeah. Well, fuck so, you. I'll show you. Like, that's McHugh, the that core mo- of it. Yeah. That, McHugh, that movie idea you had, fucking let's go do it. We'll fund it ourselves if we have to. And that's what we did. We booked our first shows. I paid for my cinematographer's plane ticket to Columbus, Ohio. And, and Gary put up some money to book some crew. And we just shot. And I, you know, paid for my editor. Like, let's see what we can build. You know, let's put on a show. Let's let's do it, you know? So it comes from the purest place. And that's what I think is cool. And I think that's going to resonate with the fans because it is, it's made by fans for fans. When I saw the the announcement about the movie and I saw the trailer, I knew immediately that it was an homage. And it's, and it's, a, it's a statement that, no, 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 we're... We're all good. Fuck everybody else if they don't think we're cool. We know we're cool. And this this movie represents you, not a character version of you, but it's really you from a respectful position. And watching it, I felt that feeling of going to a show and of belonging and it made me feel so good. And at the same time, it made me miss going to shows so much because the last show that I went to was Bush in Vegas at the House of Blues. And I and I even told Chris Trainer this from the band. I was like, you know, if I had known that was going to be the last show I was going to see for a fucking year, I would have had another drink. I would have sang more. I would have lived in the moment more because I was taking it for granted that I could just go to another show the next week. Well, because your whole life, you as a media personality, you've gotten tickets to shows and, you know, hey, if you got to buy a ticket here or there, whatever, you know, it's okay. We, we, make, we make money. That's what we make money for. So, yeah, absolutely. And you take things for granted and you and you can't in this world. You know, life is too short. I mean, COVID killing a half a million people in our country in one year. That's fucking serious business. And, you know, everything should be taken, not taken for granted. Your family, your passions, your time. You know, you just don't know how long you have um, to do the things you want to do and be with the people you want to be with. And it's a wake up call in a way to, to, you know, step back and like look at things and really think about things. So, yeah, for as an homage, 100 percent, that's what this movie is. And it's that's what it's meant to be. And, you know, it's not like we did it to make money because we've been working for two years without getting paid. So the <laughs> bottom line is, you know. It's it's a karmic thing, and we're happy we were able to put it to get it out there. And thank you for all the bands for participating and giving us your music, and for the rates you gave it to us for, and for all the people that worked on this movie, the crew, uh, the fans, the um, the the party crew. We couldn't have done it without you. So if you're listening to this, this is all about you. And you're going to be able to see that when you watch the movie. You know, there's the the link to the film. There's an events calendar on mistresscarry.com. The movie poster's up there. The link to get the passes to watch the film is up there. After the premiere, because it's March 11th at 8 p.m., after the premiere, what are the plans for the film? Sure. So the film basically, starting on the 12th, goes to um, what's called virtual cinema. 
And, uh, you know, there's a number of uh, movie theaters like like festivals and, and venues are crushed. They're dead. So the idea of going to uh, there's a platform called Eventive and you'll get it through longliverockmovie.com and you can pick a cinema that you want to support um, and you can watch the movie through that that platform. Um, and then there'll be other bands and other people like Mr. Carey that you can go to their site and just continue to watch the movie. Um, after that, we're negotiating with a couple of other different platforms, but you know, odds are it's Amazon and iTunes who can, you know, you can rent the movie there. Um, so it's, it's an interesting thing because it's not like it's all set in stone. It's not like Netflix is going to come going, Oh my God, I love this genre. I'm going to put this on, you know, it's not going to happen, right? We're just, we're the poor bastard stepchildren of the film business. And so there'll be ways to find it. You can watch it, but like anything else good, you got to find it. You got to go look for it. You got to find it. So longliverockmovie.com will have all the information of where, when, and how to find it. But, you know, and just, you know, look, it's all about spreading the word. Like you were doing, Mr. Scary, you know, the fans out there, please spread the word because otherwise you can't make another movie like this and they won't be successful. Um, and we got a lot of people to pay back who helped, uh, who believed in the movie. And we thank them for that. The investors and the producers who helped step up and make this movie. So. Let's pay them back so we can make another one. Because I, here's the other thing. The other thing I didn't do, Carrie, I really wanted this to be an international movie. But guess what? I didn't have the money to go to some of those amazing rock festivals where it all started, really, where where Braveheart started, you know, where these um, monsters of rock and these things started and where rock is huge in places like Germany and France and the South America. So the goal would be you make Long Live Rock 2, the international version. Um, but again, if this is successful, why not? We'll go do that. I'm down. I went a couple of years ago to Romania, um, and I saw Judas Priest in Bucharest and I had never gone to a rock concert outside of the United States. And I just happened to be there. Um, my husband's in the military and he was over there. And so I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go over there. Why don't I go on Polestar and see who's going to be in Romania while I'm there in case I can find a band that's good. And I was like, oh, my God, Judas Priest is going to be there. I called the record company and I'm like, hey, can you guys help me get some tickets to see Judas Priest on this date? And they were like, Carrie, the, the band's not even in Boston that day. They're in Bucharest. I was like, I know I'm going to be in Bucharest. The experience of going to see Judas Priest in Romania, it took over all of downtown Bucharest generations of families all with the shirts on you could tell people walking down the street oh they're going to the show they're going to the show they're going to the show and to watch three generations of metal fans watch judas priest for anybody that's never traveled outside of the united states it's a whole other level of passion in places like japan and germany and brazil when it comes to the passion and loyalty for rock as a genre. So yeah, you're I mean, making we, a movie like well, this. We were lucky enough, we were, you know, again, before everything shut down, we were lucky enough to do a cast and crew screening in Columbus for just fans jumping out of their seats. I was able to, um, I was invited to Estonia, right? In Eastern Europe, another rocking country to screen the movie at a festival there. And that was beautiful to see this, you know, um, an international audience, respond to the movie as they did uh and then we were able to screen it for uh the grammy museum uh just in february literally february 6th like you know a month before it all shut down so i got to see a little bit of film festival i could have played a lot more uh we had a bunch we had one in greece lined up and that didn't work and you know a couple others but 
you know, I got to see it a little bit outside of the country once and uh, at some at some theaters and that was good. But yeah, it's um, look, everybody's frustrated. The things they didn't get. My daughter didn't get high school graduation. My daughter didn't get prom. She didn't get first semester college. You know, a lot of people are making sacrifices and, you know, it is what it is. And just look, I'm happy. Like I said, if it can brighten up a couple of people's day. God bless, you know. It brightened mine. Um, it made me it it made me so um kind of homesick, but also it kind of reminded me of how good things can be and how it, it gave me something to look forward to when we can all go back and start going to shows again. And it sounds that's where, like that's why we're putting it we're out getting now. there. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like we're getting there. People tell me all the time I should write a book, but you need to write a book with some of the stories you have too. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on it. It's just another another thing to put on a list that I've been working on for a number of years to do it. But uh, making these movies is time consuming. I, like I said, my day job is music supervising film and TV shows. And I also teach. I love teaching. So, yeah, whatever it takes to make a living, because documentary films is not quite going to get it done quite yet, but maybe someday. And you I'd got the, the writing stuff in your DNA. And quickly, before I let you go, your mom, you told me, is from Boston. So you spent yes. a lot of time here, even though you're, you know, a fan of the evil empire as a Yankees fan, that you spent a lot of time in Boston. Do you do you have a, a, a typical Boston memory you want to share before you go? Oh, my God. There's so many of them. I mean, you know, one of my first memories, period, is with my uncle going to the beach in um um i want to say it's not revere it's further up north my grandmother lived in revere my mother grew up in in rock like nantasket yeah i forget the town but anyway they they basically said you know the water's very cold here there's a thing called the labrador current and i'm like yeah whatever i just jump in the water and i'm fucking my teeth are chattering and they and they buy me a red ball to get my mind off how cold i am um then another great one was um my mother my grandmother lived in revere and um there was all these duck pin bowling there was like this whole strip right in revere they had kelly's roast beef and they had great chowder and i went duck pin bowling for the first time which is something i'd never heard of you know for these little pins these little stick pins so i mean i have so many of them like one of my favorite foods ever is legal seafood fish chowder you know different shit like that you know that i could talk for days about boston but uh, a lot a of people town. don't know, like the candle pin bowling. Like I candle grew up pin, right. only playing candle pin, right? And that if we were going to go play what people consider to be traditional bowling, we called it big ball bowling because <laughs> you had to search for a place to go big ball bowling, right? Because every candle bowling pin. alley was candle pin, right. and I had no idea that candle pin bowling was a regional thing, right? Just like I didn't know fluff was a regional thing. Right. Well, like growing up, you think that you can get yodels and ring dings and devil dogs anywhere. Drake's, but Drake's was a New York regional bakery. I was like, wait, I can't get yodels on the West Coast. What do you mean? You know, so it's interesting, the regional culture um, of how it works. But, uh, you know, the good news about this music is it is regional as well as national, as well as international. And music can just travel anywhere. Um, And I think we've been blessed, you and I, to work in this business for our whole lives, pretty much. Um, and the fact is, you know, you can spread your, your gospel, uh, through your podcast, you have a platform and, and, you know, much like Jose or anybody has a platform or octane or whatever. Um, and for me, it's making movies. And if I could spread that out there, it's, it's a beautiful life, you know? Oh, I almost forgot. You got to tell me your extreme story. Yeah. So extreme was interesting because they were my, 
uh, I worked at uh, A&M Records and we signed Extreme. And Extreme was from Boston, so they had some regional traction. Um, but they were like, do something with Extreme, like get them out there. So I called a radio station, it was a top 40 station in Syracuse, New York. And I said, hey man, I got this band uh, and I would love to, can we do something together in Syracuse and get you to play the record? And he, and he listens to the record and he says, well, yeah, you got this more than words song. I mean, that's that could be something. And I said, he goes, the rest of the record is like a hard rock record and we don't play that music. And I said, I know, I know, but look, this song could be something. We're going to work this song. Uh, they're in Syria, they're in Boston. They could drive up to Syracuse. We could do a show. He's like, all right, I'll tell you what, there's a junior high school that's been begging me to do something with them to get them something for an assembly. And I go, Oh, a junior high school. All right, let me check. I, I mean, I, I know we want to do something, but I'm not sure about junior high school. So I'm like, all right, let me check. So I say, Hey guys, uh, how do you feel about playing in junior high school? They're like, whatever, we'll do it. If you, you want to promote they it. They played my high school in 1987. Right. I still have the t-shirt. Right. So this is probably 1989 or whatever. Right. And so we go to this junior high school and the principals are all like, all right, you got to sit on the floor and you got to stay down. That's it. Otherwise the assembly is over. Okay. So they start rocking. They, they do a couple songs. Um, they play more than words and everybody's like, wow, what a great song. And then I forget the song they played right after that, but the more than words got them thinking, right? That this is like, this is a real deal thing. Like this could be a big band, these kids. And all of a sudden they jump in, I forget the song and everybody starts jumping up and girls start literally taking off their training bras and throwing them at Nuno, <laughs> right? Cause Nuno's like this good looking rock star and him and Gary. And I'll never forget. And the, and the, and the principal's trying to like get order. And uh, he like wants to pull the mic. And I'm like, I'm kind of talking to him like from getting on stage and trying to, 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 to pull the mic. And Gary Dunes is the program director. He's like, come on, calm down. Let's go out and get some water. It'll be fine. Like he calms him down. Like let the kids, you know, there's only five more minutes. Like let it go. And then, and it ends and everybody leaves. And, and the band was like, that was surreal. I was like, yeah, welcome <laughs> to rock stardom, gentlemen. It's going to happen for you. <laughs> and then cut to years later, I'm working with Rihanna at Def Jam, and all of a sudden, who walks backstage but Nuno? And I was like, I hadn't checked on who was playing in the band, and it's like, Nuno, McHugh. He's like, what the fuck? So we caught up and had a great hang and talked about the years in between, you know, because he's had a great, he's had a great, uh, interesting career, Nuno. So, but yeah, that's, that was my extreme story. It was fun. My first time I, I ever had him that. on the podcast recently, and it was just really interesting to hear that even though he's been out in L.A. for all those years and he's worked with so many artists outside of the rock genre and all of that, within 15 minutes of he and I talking, just like you and I are, his accent was back. His attitude was back. He's like, fuck this and that. And he's like, he went full masshole right again. Right, and right. it came. Masshole. Like, you Is know, that a term? He, wait, wait, wait. Stop. Stop. Is that a term? Masshole? Oh, absolutely. We oh call ourselves God, I never, that. I never heard that. That's genius. Really? Yeah. Well, that's oh, the yeah. That, that's that's what we Yankee fans would think of the Red Sox fans. Masshole. Like you go evil. Yeah, well, we call we ourselves masshole. that. It's like when I call myself the baddest bitch in Boston. It's like, well, if, if I'm calling myself a bitch, you calling me a bitch, like it doesn't doesn't do anything. Right. It's like, I know I'm a bitch. I call myself that. So we refer to ourselves as massholes and it's like the most masshole thing to do to like, you know, so if you guys as your smelly, dirty Yankees fans are going to throw <laughs> barbs at us. <laughs> 
then we're just going to use it as a term of endearment, you right. know? Again, the music. Look, here's a good one for you. It takes us, it brings us all together, right? Right. It's not about Yankee or Mets. It's not about Yankee or Red Sox fans. It's about the music. So, Mrs. Carey, to you, I say thank you, you so much for having us. Thank and, you. Uh, and let's keep uh, spreading the word about the movie. There he is, Jonathan McHugh, the director and one of the producers of Long Live Rock, Celebrate the Chaos. The premiere is on Thursday night, March 11th at 8 p.m. In the show notes of this podcast is a link for you to get tickets, the official website, and don't forget the corresponding playlist. Oh my God, there is some great music that goes along with episode 40 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. Once again, thank you so much to our sponsors, Digital Federal Credit Union at dcu.org, and of course, mistresscarry.com for sponsoring this week's episode. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss anything with the Mistress Carrie podcast. New episodes every Wednesday, and it includes the sit rep. Get all your rock news and music headlines in less than five minutes every weekday. And if you don't mind, give us a five-star review and leave us a comment. And join me every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern Time, live on my Facebook page for Cocktails in the War Room. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. As we continue to face COVID-19, we're now facing flu season. Influenza has the potential to infect millions, putting lives and the healthcare system at risk. Now more than ever, it's essential to protect yourself from influenza by getting the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is safe and effective and can't give you the flu. To protect yourself and those at highest risk, get your flu vaccine. Learn more at michigan.gov flu. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? Not just bikes. We also make a rower. Have you ever tried to row? Too hard. Not with Form Assist. It actually teaches you how to row. So it doesn't matter if you're a first-time rower or a seasoned pro. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Row risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial.